Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 82 of the Ad Nauseam Podcast. My name is Dr. Jeff Winkle, and I'm here. We're back in Vam- Vomitorium East. Vomitorium East. You got it, buddy. Uh, Vomitorium East. And I'm here, as always, with my good friend, Dr. David Noe. How are you feeling today, Dave? I'm doing pretty well. I am eager to talk about classics. It soothes the soul. Yeah. I, I find that, too. Yeah. It's, it's sometimes it's a little bit hectic, you know, when putting an episode together and getting us together. But when it comes down to the discussion... That's right. It, uh, it, it, it all evens out. Schlepping all the bags and equipment from Vomitorium West to Vomitorium East. There's no picnic. We should start an internship program. We should. If you're out there listening and you enjoy carrying things around... <laughs> Uh, if you'd like to work for no pay once a week, yeah, stop on by one of the vomitoria, and uh, we'd be happy to take you on as an intern. Yeah, the uh, it's the introductory schlep program. That's correct. Right, <laughs> right. We can take you from no schlep to all schlep to full schlep. We'll have you bringing things that have nothing to do with the podcast. Just carry around sacks of stuff. We'll provide you with the bags for carrying things. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly. just, that's just how we are here at right. uh, at, at nauseum. We're not going to leave our interns. We're not going to you know hang them out to dry. No, no, you don't have to provide your own bags we no them right here we've got uh, multi-sakuli that's right that's right so dave we are talking about we're talking about we're doing some more ovid that's right yep so a couple of more ovid vignettes that's correct or vignettes, vignettes. As, as we like to say yep should we um should we talk a little bit about uh what they are or should yes. we save that until after the, kind of the introductory uh, let's, materials let's give the briefest of teasers all right so uh, we're talking about um deucalion and pyrrha that's correct the what? children of uh, uh, prometheus and epimetheus mm-hmm. respectively and the uh, the two main characters in what's sometimes called the Greek flood story. Exactly. The Greek Noah. The Greek Deucalion. Noah. Uh, Pyrrha, you know, there isn't a corresponding name for the wife of Noah in Genesis, but uh, among the Greeks, she's called Pyrrha. Yeah. Yep. And then we're also going to tackle uh, the the death and transformation of, of, of Perdix. Yes. The very brief story about the partridge in a pear tree. Right. Now, I got, Dave, I got to ask you, um, I will reveal to the audience, you chose these. Um, these episodes, and I'm just kind of curious out of into the hundreds of episodes in the Metamorphosis, why did you settle on these two? Well, I've always been interested in Deucalion and Pyrrha for a number of reasons, uh, primarily because of the character of Deucalion and also how the story ends, hmm. how the story ends with the repopulation of the earth. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And then for Perdix, um, I think it's a good revenge story, and uh, it's very brief. So yes. thought we'd tackle a large you know, longer extended kind of story with Deucalion and Pyrrha, and then something briefer and more pointed. And um, this will take us into our opening quote from Elaine Fantham, but we have to get to our shout out. Right. We have a a long-time listener. Yes. A first-time caller. Right. Right, right. Um, This is uh, uh, Samara Sims from New Zealand. All the way from New Zealand. Yes. Right, right. Tremendous young lady contacted us and uh, gave us one of the nicest... One of the nicest emails we've received in a long time. Can I read some of that? Please do. All right. My name is Samara Sims, and I discovered your podcast when you first posted it to YouTube. It showed up on my recommended. Hmm. I think that's how the young people say my list of recommended Or, or, or that's how they listens. say it, uh, way down in, in Kiwi land. I don't know if you can say down under, because that's a different country. That is, right. Don't don't confuse them. Do no? I, I had a New Zealander roommate Uh-oh. once. And uh, he got very miffed about being confused with Australia. With an Aussie? Yes. What are some of the key differences? Well, um, 
one of the things is that um, what I, th- I don't know if this has anything to do with Australia, but um, one of the things that irritated him is like, in traveling through the states, he said that everybody assumed that um, because I was from New Zealand, I was into soccer, and New Zealanders are not into soccer. They're not. It's rugby. Oh, okay. It's rugby all the time. And right. And also, um, he schooled me on the the differences between the accents. He also mm. thought people thought you know the Australian and New Zealand accents the same. Clearly. Uh, but uh, he says no, no, no. And he gave me the word to 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 settle in. So if you use the word better. Um, and an Australian would say better. Better. And a New Zealander would say bitter. 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 Right. right? So can you a, put a, either on bread? Uh, you can put bitter, better, uh, or butter. B- better. It's better to put the bitter <laughs> on the bread. Yes. So he. That's to, that's how you do those e's. Okay. Right. That's and, it. And he was very intent. Like you know, uh-huh. there's, a, there's a difference. Yeah. And, that guy's never getting a shout out. Let me just say. <laughs> But let's go back to Samara. Yes, please. She yes. said, I was intrigued, and now I have listened to every episode and will continue to do so. Fantastic. Wow, we're so grateful. Yep. I'm 19 and in my second year at the University of Auckland, whose motto, I looked it up, is Ingenio et Labore. So, by ingenuity and work. That's right. Yes. Before the effects of your podcast, I like the way she put that. You yes. Know, it's like um, a hurricane or something. Before the effects of your podcast, I was majoring in philosophy and... <laughs> Media studies. Media studies. Media studies. All right. After the effects of your podcast, I am majoring in philosophy and... And classics. Yeah. So drop the media studies. Absolutely. Right? Drop it like a hot potato. Right, right. So she says, I did take classics in high school, but you reintroduced them to me in such a way that you left me no other choice but to change my course of study. That, that's what we do here. We take away people's choices. That's, right, exactly. that's our primary we, purpose. We make you carry things around. <laughs> right. right. And we take away your freedoms. Exactly. Right. So she says, uh, thank you for bringing classics and the study of them to life in such a fun, informative, and engaging way um, as is often rare to see. I love what you do and will always support and recommend your podcast. Wow. Man. So sweet. Thank you so much, Samara. Yeah, we really says, appreciate it. Thanking you henceforward. Now, there's a promise, right? Right. She has no idea what we're going to say next. No. But, but she's, she's, she's thanking already in advance. Th- yes. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's the way I pay my bills, right? Here's <laughs> right. a check dated uh, six months in advance. <laughs> Paying you henceforward, Samara Sims. So thank you so much, Samara, for uh, listening and sending us this very sweet letter. And Dave, you have our opening quote, I believe. Yes, I do. And this is once again from uh, the book by Elaine Fantham, um, Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is in the Oxford Approaches to Classical Literature, and I think the date of this is 2004. Okay. So we mentioned Elaine, I don't know, it was last time, a couple times ago. Do we call her Laney? We, we, we called her Laney sure in honor can. of Seinfeld. She's, right. a, she's a serious scholar, she Jeffrey. So I know, so I don't, maybe Laney is off the table. Maybe Laney is off the table. Right. So she's talking about the opening lines of uh, the metamorphoses, in no affair, mus mutatas, formas, so on and so forth. And so this is on page five of the book, and she says... How would Roman connoisseurs of poetry and poetic didactis, uh, poetic criticism react to this, namely to Ovid's um, ambitious boast that he's going to sing of bodies changed to other forms I tell, mm-hmm. you gods who have yourselves wrought every change, inspire my enterprise, and so forth. That's the Melville translation. She says, wouldn't they recall that Horace warned budding poets against beginning their epics too far back in time? And narrating the Trojan War from the egg which hatched fair Helen. <laughs> Isn't Ovid going over the top? So that's the question I want to start out with. Okay. Because I think that's so emblematic of Ovid's whole over approach. Sure, sure, sure. Well, can we go back to, to Horace for a second? Yes. I mean, um, what's the... 
uh, what's the argument that horses make it? Well, why why not? Why not go back to uh, Helen and the egg? What's uh, the problem? I'm not real sure, but you know, Horace was uh, coming after the Neoteric poets, uh-huh. right? And the Neoteroi, like um, a, a term that Cicero phrased, uh, fellows like Catullus were known for the labor limai, right? The hard work of constant revision. And yeah. they, they were following the Alexandrian um, sort of idea, Callimachus. The big book, bad book. Right? Yes, big right. book, big evil. Big evil, right. Bad book, right. Right. Uh, big trouble, right? Yes. Like uh, one of our interns, right? We start them out with a small book, a small bag. Yeah. Schlep a small bag around with maybe a few bottles of water. Right, like a, like a sandwich bag. Exactly. Yeah. We don't give them, you know, the, the giant plastic thing with the big um, tarpy straps no. right, right oh, off no, the... No. Of course not. Right, right off the you, bat. You build to that. You build. So <laughs> right. big book, big evil, big problem. Yes. And so the, um, you know, the Neoteric poets are following that Kalimachean model. And mm-hmm. I think Horace is kind of saying the same thing. Look, you know, my fellow Roman poets... Let's ease into this rivalry, rivalry with the Romans. Right. That, that's my understanding. Can I use a kind of a, a, a pop rock metaphor? For Can this? I stop you? Right. So, so I'm thinking this reminds me of kind of the shift that happens in the 1970s, where you have bands like Yes and Led Zeppelin and some of the or some of the more kind of prog rock guys who are kind of like 12 minute songs yeah. that are about you know, like Norse mythology. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of reaches a boiling point until about 1977. And what you have is breaking out is, is the punk rock movement is back to three chords and sometimes the truth. Okay. Right. So you kind of, it kind of, maybe Horace is saying it's gotten too, it's gotten too, it's gotten too huge. It's gotten too okay, over the top. So just strip it down to its basics. Yes. Um, so maybe kind of a kind of a reaction almost. A rea- yeah, exactly. Right. So we don't, we don't even need four chords. Let's just keep it to three. Three. Right. G, C, and D. That's all you need. Mm-hmm. That's right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's maybe where it's partly going. But um, you know that old expression that this is maybe oh I guess fifteen years ago when people were saying push the envelope. Yes. Right. And then the really sharp ones would say. There is no envelope. Oh yeah! Did you get tired of that? I get, I, I get tired of those kind of phrases. Really <laughs> I do too. It's all like, like um, think outside the box. There is no box. There is no box. Yeah. Oh, very clever. <laughs> very clever. I'm pretty sure somewhere there's a box. That's right. That's right. And then maybe somewhere, somewhere in the mix of that, somebody's saying, "Be the box." Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think you know, with Ovid, is this over the top? That is not the question you ask Ovid. Mm. Everything is over the top. Right. Ovid has no sense of restraint in the way that he delivers his poetic beauty. And, and that's why he's so charming. Right. You know, I, I would definitely agree with that. Do you think it may be in some ways that he's taking his cue, uh, certainly not from Horace, but from, from, from Virgil? Well, for Virgil would be biting off a huge, you know, Homeric chunk. Sure. They call it the anxiety of influence, right? That once someone has come out and done something amazing, you can't uh, seek to compete with them on their own terms. Yeah. We've talked about this before, right? Once the you know the genre has reached its uh, fevered pitch, who can yeah. possibly top that? So if you still have something to say artistically, you have to find um, some space within that within that genre to do something a little bit different. Right, right. So you say that Ovid is in 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 some ways he's he's trying to he's breaking free of that um, correct anxiety of influence. He's not he's not hemmed in, in in a way that Virgil was. Right. He's doing his own thing. Right, and I think a very signal example of this. I think we mentioned it last time, is when he describes the fall of Troy. He compresses all of book two of the Aeneid, the fall of Troy, into a single line. Right. And Troy fell, and with it Priam. Yeah. Right, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Now, he says, he says a lot more about Troy, but he does it from so many different angles. The story of this individual and that individual. Yeah. But if you're talking about the fall itself, 
a single line. So yeah. that's how Ovid deals with yeah, Virgil, the elephant in the room. Who can compete with that? Yeah. It's just too overwhelming. Maybe you can come up with another kind of uh, pop rock uh, reference here. Who Who is someone, maybe Elvis or someone else, who so owns a particular aspect of uh, pop music that no one would attempt to do the same kind of thing? Yeah, no, I think... Right, so you, you can... you. I think like a band, it's in a band that I don't even particularly like. I should mention Led Zeppelin. Right. Um, I think that's one of those bands where um, I think this idea you, you can't outdo them. You can only kind of pay homage right. to some degree. There's this local, not local, but it's a Michigan band. Have you heard of Greta Van Flint? I have. Right? From Flint. Right. Uh, uh, again, it, uh, a lot of people are very excited about this band, but in every review, uh, it's always mentioned that well, it's a bit derivative of mm. they're trying to do Led Zeppelin, right? And so you know, how do you thread that needle be- between kind of trying to do something new, but also kind of you know standing on these foundations that came before you, right? Right. So Ovid has accomplished that, yeah, right, because yeah. he invites comparison to Virgil, but primarily because he's Roman, they're writing in the same meter, mm-hmm. and they're near contemporaries, right? But to my to my knowledge, as I interpret it, those are about the only similarities. Yeah. In every other way, Ovid's doing something quite different. Exactly, and I would bring up. I mean, we talked about this in our in our last episode about um, you know with Ovid, you never know if he's he's you know on the level, right? You don't right. ever know if, if he's joking. And you know, with with Virgil, when I read the Aeneid, I don't see oh you know maybe is he you know got his tongue in his cheek? No. No, there's hardly any humor in right. Virgil. No, but, but very, like, very we, few light moments. So, listener, if you haven't listened to the um, the episode on we talked about Pythagoras, right? Uh, that that um, that bit about the at the end where Ovid's possibly is kind of pulling out the rug from everything that just came by right. that came out in the in the hundreds of lines before that. You don't find that in Virgil. No. And so one of the things that I think that makes Ovid endlessly fascinating, but also maddening at the same time. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, Jeff. So as we start to look at Deucalion and Pyrrha in particular, mm-hmm. what's the setting and the background for the flood itself? Where did it come from? Well, it comes from uh, the anger of Zeus. And uh, so the, the, the setup is that Zeus is... Well, we, we had an episode before where Zeus you know, comes down in human form. Yes. Right? And it, he comes like, down with um, Mercury or Hermes. Right, Hermes. Yeah, to kind of to test humanity, mm-hmm. right? To see if there's any you know, mo- you know moral people left. And that one ended with a flood as well. That's right. Yes. That's right. And that right. was the Bacchus and Philemon episode exactly where right. we compared it to Acts. Yes, yes, yes. So we have a similar kind of setup here where Zeus is um, comes down to find out if humanity is as wicked as he as he's heard. As yeah, you, you hear these rumors, you know, they right. get they get passed around. Right, right. And so he go he comes down and he's hosted by one uh, Lycaon. Yes, whose name is very similar to the Greek word for wolf. wolf. Right, right. You know, what do you make of that? Well, that's how he got the name. I mean, that's how he became what he's going to become. A lycanthrope. That's right. right, right. Teen Wolf, remember? You were going to you were gonna play in the star in the third film? Teen, Teen Wolf 3? Yeah, after Michael J. Fox and Jason Bateman, Jeffrey T. Winkle exactly. is Teen Wolf 3. Right, so after after Jason Bateman basically scuttles the whole enterprise, right. I was going to bring it back. You were going to bring it back. back from the ashes? You right. kind of look like a Teen Wolf kind of guy. Right, yeah, at age 51. Yeah, you yeah, can do it. I could still pull it off. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, so teen, he's Teen Wolf uh, hosts Zeus. Yeah. And then uh, makes the huge mistake of in, in the in the night attempting to kill him. Yes. Well, he wants to kill him and yeah. then feed him to his house. Right. Right. It's again a test of divine omniscience. If they really know everything, they should be able to interrupt my wicked plan. Right. I wonder why don't they try something more simple. Right. So could he could he tell if I switched uh, diet coke with crystal Pepsi? Exactly. Right. <laughs> What's the secret ingredient in these muffins? Is it allspice or is it cinnamon? Right. Does, I mean, there's a test. Exactly. Does, Who even knows what allspice is? <laughs> 
<laughs> By the way, just as an aside, yeah. Ovid would enjoy this. The worst named spice of all time. Like all spice? Exactly. Exactly. It's so lazy. Right. That's right. I, 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 I noticed some... Um, some cumin here. Yeah. So maybe, maybe a little bit of thyme. T- thyme. But, fennel. Oh, forget it. It's all spice. <laughs> it's, all spice. it's all of them. <laughs> That's, I splashed some of that on this morning as I left the bathroom to, you know, bring some good aroma. Right. Oh, sorry. That's uh, <laughs> That's old spice. That's old spice. Old, yes, exactly. Right. Uh, maybe a, a sponsorship. Yeah, yeah, there we go. All right. But to get back to yes. the story here. Um, yeah, why do they always have to kind of amp it up to eleven every time? Yes, with the uh, you know the cutting and the cannibalism. I I don't know. There would have you'd think there would be simpler ways to figure it out, like a game of Uno, maybe. <laughs> right. Uh, Wordle. Yeah, Wordle. There you go. Have you done any Wordling? I I'm I'm over it. Yeah. I'm past of it. I'm I'm outside that box. I am almost past of it too. I've pushed that envelope as far as I want to. <laughs> but I suppose if you're going to tell a story, that's going to illustrate the. Full depravity of, point. of man. It's eating one another, right? And so you, that's your guy is your guy in the story is going to do that. Yeah. So what happens then? So, so Zeus says, "Hey, I'm going to just destroy this whole house and wipe out all these human beings." Right. Which seems a little bit overreactive too. Well, it's a, it's a, it's an example of one. Has anyone tried to kill you in the night and eat you? Not that I'm aware of. Okay, right. so you might have a pretty strong reaction. Right. Exactly. It's certainly right. possible. So our friend Lickeon is transformed into a wolf. Yes. That's an episode on its own. Right. And Zeus brings the water on the world to right. swamp it. Yes. Um, and then um, very much like the, the Noah account, mm-hmm. um, one, uh, one couple or one, you know, one person is singled out to survive this particular thing. Yeah. Let me read a little bit of uh, Genesis 6 here. Okay. The Lord saw, this is Genesis 6 from the ESV, English Standard Version. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a very emphatic statement. Yes. It's uh, universal in every respect. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Right. So um, Deucalion is our is our Noah figure here. Yes, right? I, a, a striking difference here that um, so in the the Genesis account God does not come down to 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 test. I mean, it, it reminds me um, we see a similar kind of thing I think in the Deucalion story with like the Sodom and Gomorrah, where the uh, the the angels or the the divine figures show up at Lot's door, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we do I think we see an overlap there, but in this in the Genesis account God knows the hearts of, of that's of a good men point and. Another singular difference is that in the Greek account, it doesn't really say that Deucalion was spared because he was moral. Moral, right, right. It's no. completely off the table. Yeah, is, I mean, I'm, I'm. Is there any kind of consideration at all? Is like, why, you know, why Deucalion? I'm, I mean, I'm. No, I don't. I don't think so. Now, later in the story, as we're going to read some of the Latin and then some of uh, the the English from uh, Ambrose and Lombardo, yep. um, Deucalion and Pyrrha are presented as righteous in for. In as far as how they behave after the flood, right, right, they right. do worship Apollo and they go through the rituals and so forth. But I don't think it's mentioned that that's the reason for their rescue. Yeah, from the drink. Yeah, 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 yeah. So can I read a little bit of the Latin there Please. as this part of the story gets started, and then you can. Uh... I'll, I'll I'll offer a translation. All right. Yep. So we have this is a uh, book one of the Metamorphoses, line three thirteen. Separat a unios oitaiis focus abarwis. 
terra feroxtum terdra fuit sed temporin illo, pars maris et latus subitardrum compus aquardrum, monzibi verticabus petitarduus astra duobus, nomine parnas sa superantque cacumina nubes, hic ubi del cali an, nam caetera texer at aequor, cum consortitori parva rata vectus ad haesit, cor ricidas nim facet numina montis adordrant, and the last line here, Fa tidi cam quetemim quae temin quae tunc or dracla tenebat. All right. So that's the first mention we have there of Deucalion. Oh, I, I tried to slow down so people could hear it. Yes, excellent. I, and I'm going to read from uh, Stanley Lombardo's Lombardo. translation, which goes like this. Focus is a land that separates Boeotia from Oitaya, a fertile land while it was still land. But now it was part of the sea, a great plain of flood water. There was a steep mountain there with twin peaks stretching up through the clouds. To the high stars. Its name is Parnassus. When Deucalion and his wife landed here, in their little skiff, water covered everything else. They first paid a visit to the Corician Cor- Cor- nymphs, uh, the mountain gods, and Themis, who was the oracle then. Hmm. So like the um, like the Noah account and other Mesopotamian accounts, which we, we must cover in, a, in another episode, um, the boat here, not an ark, but a little skiff, uh, comes to rest at a mountain. Hmm. And not just any mountain. But um, probably second in place to Mount Olympus. Yes. Uh, Parnassus, the, the home of the Oracle of Delphi. That's right. And in um, Greek accounts, the, the center of the world. Right. Yeah. Are you ready to eat some crow? I am, please. So me too. And we dealt with this in a previous episode. I don't remember which one. We talked about the origin of the phrase, eat crow. Yeah. It was um, an Indian man and an Englishman who were trapped in some pit they had fallen into based on a historical account. And apparently the Indian man was willing to save his life, his own life, by eating crow, and the Englishman was not um, interested in doing so. Hmm. So you ready to eat some crow? Yeah, let's, let's eat it. <laughs> All right. Yeah. We just spent a little bit of time saying, uh, to our knowledge, here's her self-mocking voice, Deucalion was not any more holy than the others. Yes. Uh, so listener, look, this, this is where you learn that it pays to read ahead. <laughs> so let me quote from the uh, Ambrose translation. Picking up right where you stopped. No person was better than he, that's Deucalion, nor more a lover of the just was any man, nor any woman more reverent than she towards the gods. How does that crow taste for us? Oh, man, that's that's, that's bitter. (laughs) As Jupiter sees the world flooded with watery swamps, and just one man from so many thousands survive, and just one woman from so many thousands survive, and innocent both, worshippers of deity both, he scatters the clouds, and with stormy clouds by Aquilo's wind dispelled, he shows the sky to the earth, the firmament to the earth. So there, there we have it. So yes. we, he is—he is rescued. He is rescued, and uh, and Pira is also rescued because of their of their high moral quality. That's right. Specifically, okay. they reverence the gods and they worship the gods. So let this be a lesson to you, listener. Next time, read ahead. Yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, are we done with the crow? I can, guess so. Can we, can we move on? Yeah, yeah, some humble pie. So I, I a couple notes here. So. Um, I, I like this idea that the kind of the world is starting over at Parnassus, and which makes sense. You, you started over kind of um, at, at the at the center of things. Mm-hmm. So that, there's that famous account where Zeus wants to know where the center of the world is, so he sends two eagles flying towards each other, one from the the far east end of of things, and one from the far west, and they come to meet over Parnassus. So we have that, but then also this idea of I think that something that ties all the flood the um, the flood stories together is that. You know, when I taught this in, in myth class, um, I've had students ask, well, well, why why a flood? You know, why not 
a volcano or right. or a meteor or something like that. And I think part of what's going on here is that this notion of water as being kind of primeval. It's the beginning of things, right? So even right. In, in, at the beginning of Genesis, um, we hear that the spirit is hovering over the water. The water is there. Yes, and the waters. I mean, the spirit separates the waters from the dry from land. The, from the dry land, right? But there's something about water as being as being um, primal. Correct, right? and also extraordinarily dangerous and destructive, right? Exactly. Throughout the Old Testament and even in parts of the New, water is the enemy. The Lord in the Psalms, He holds the flood waters back so they don't sweep over our heads. Yes. It's a common ancient Near Eastern motif. Absolutely. A Jungian might say that the water represents... You're going to bring him in? Just briefly, please. All right. I'm a big Carl fan. A Jungian might say that the water um, represents the amniotic fluid that we're all born in. <laughs> is that what he really says? Well, I, th- I think that, that's a Jungian... Uh, so the and we're trying is, to escape from that? It's, well, da- it's dangerous? Well, or at least at the very... At the, we recognize it inherently as something to do with our beginnings. We all, oh. are, we all begin in water, so to speak. Oh. Right, so... Interesting. Yeah, take it or leave it. I find it just, I find it interesting. I'll mostly leave it. Okay. Yeah. So when I, when I crack an egg, you yeah. know, and uh, as I often do to make an omelet. Yes. Right? Um, isn't that what uh, Lenin said? Yes. Yeah, V.I. Lenin. To make an omelet, you have to crack a lot of eggs. You got to right? crack a lot of eggs. Yes. Right. It's a violent thing to say, but when I make myself an omelet in the morning and that, you know, that amniotic stuff comes out of yeah. there into the pan, I don't really have any Jungian feelings there. Well, that's just because you've suppressed them. You need a, a really? tra- trained an al- an analyst to kind of draw them out. Uh, right? So, Well, the yoke's on him, let oh. me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, let's let's move forward. Okay, yes, let's do that. So, what's next in the in the story? Here? Well, next we're going to have um, some nice conversation between Deucalion and Pyrrha. Now, what is their genealogy? Well, if I'm not mistaken, they are first cousins. Yes, because Deucalion is the son of Prometheus, yes. one of the Titans, whose name means forethought, and uh, Pyrrha is the daughter of Prometheus's brother. Epimetheus, Epimetheus, whose name means afterthought. Afterthought, right? How'd you like that for a name? Oh man, and, <laughs> he does not. He does not uh, survive well in the mythology. He's the one who takes Pandora because, uh, because his basic response is like, "Oh, okay, sounds good." Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where do I bring this? Right. So you know, you go to Epimetheus's house, right, and he's he's serving you a meal, and this Coca Cola is flat. Who's responsible for this? <laughs> Right. Epimetheus, Epimetheus, once again. Yeah. There's too much salt in, you know, in these eggs. It's Epimetheus. Epimetheus. Afterthought. Afterthought, right. Because he's very, very wise, but he's always too late we, in being wise. He's too late. And his brother is, is you know, he's the, for, he's the forethinker. Correct. Who's annoying in his own way. You think so? I think so. Like, he stole fire and brought it down from heaven so for far. us. I mean, there's things very admirable about him. But, yeah. Uh, I mean, the Greeks often depict Prometheus as... A benefactor to humanity, but also the idea of knowing the future is uh, is a curse. It's dangerous. Right. So Prometheus is one of the gifts that he gave to humanity. It's not just the fire, but that he I gave them blind hopes. Right. right. I, I took away the ability to know the future because if you knew it, you'd you'd go fetal. Yes. Well, before um, Prometheus, we knew the day of our death, and that yeah. was part of the punishment as well. Right. 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 But Epimetheus is the kind of guy that you know he gets in a car accident and then says, "Oh, I'm going to buy insurance tomorrow." Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Too late, man. Right. So that's that is Pyrrha's father. Yes. Right. And so they are first cousins. Yeah. And that explains uh, the little part of the Latin I'm going to read here, uh, and and then we're going to get some of the translation. When the world returned to its proper form, and yet there were no inhabitants. Mm. Right. So mm-hmm. this uh, begins at line 348 of Book One. Reditus orbis erat quem postquem vidit inanem et de sola tas agaralta silentia terras. There, I got it. Del Kalyan lacrimis ita pirrad fatur abortis, o soror, o conjunx, o femina sola superstes, quam camunemehi geneset patruelis origo, 
den de terus jung sit nunc ipsa pericola jungunt, terdrar rum quas cumquebident ac casus et ortus. Nos duo turba sumus possedit catera pontus. Very nice. Nicely Thanks. done. Well, yeah. I had to recover, you, you know, did, but because... You made it up with those trills. You like that? I like the trills. Yeah, yeah can't the, do it. It's the trill of the hunt, I like to say. <laughs> A trill of the hun. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, back to Lombardo. Lombardo translates this. He says, The world was restored, but when Deucalion saw it was an empty world, steeped in desolate silence, Ooh. tears welled up in his eyes as he said to Pira, um, that's, that's that's an interesting this kind of this deep emotional reaction. It's really I, nice, isn't it? Now I'm gonna I might be uh, I might be eating more crow here because I, I didn't read ahead, but I don't think Noah has that kind of reaction, right? When he finally comes out of the of the desolation of the world, right? He doesn't he doesn't weep, right? Uh, let's see. I mean, God tells no, him to, to he, sacrifice. And... No, he doesn't. But I think I'd like to explain that um, if I can. I'll do my best here. I think it's Robert Alter who is one of the uh, the. Um, not a Hebrew scholar per se, but a, a scholar of Hebrew literature uh, who writes about, the, you know, the prose and poetry of the Old Testament very, very well. And one of the comments he makes is that everything in the Old Testament narratives is suggestive, hmm. meaning that the author never tells you explicitly what so-and-so is feeling. Hmm. Or if he does, it's extraordinarily rare. Instead, the author paints the picture of everything that's going on in the setting and then in order that you can put yourself into it, he leaves that part out. What did Noah feel at that moment? Ah. And uh, it's a very effective method of storytelling, I would say, but it's subtle. And you have to read a lot of it to yeah. really live into it. Right. So quite different than Ovid, who will just tell you, this is what he felt. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'm... Um, it's not my insight at no, all. No, but, but I, a, I find that really compelling, and it's, it's start to make me start to think about you know on, on other narratives, right? Correct, right? Um, but it's also it's you know to compare that to kind of a Roman or a kind of a Greek narrative, um, where you have you know guys like Odysseus bursting into tears, correct. you know, at the drop of a hat. This it's a it's a radically different kind of cultural landscape. Right? Well, I would, I, yeah, I would say it more in terms of the way that the story is told. It's told. So right. I'm I'm quite sure Noah felt great sorrow right. and remorse and anguish and all kinds of emotions. It's just, it's not explicitly Explicit. said, gotcha. yeah. but it's all left there for us to infer from the setting. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. I'll pick up with Lombardo um, at that same point. So tears okay. welled up in his eyes as Deucalion, as he said to Pira, my wife and sister, the last woman alive of our common race, our family, our marriage bed, and now our perils themselves have united us in all the lands from sunrise to sunset. We too are the whole population. The sea holds the rest. Yes. Yeah. That's good, isn't it? It is very good. It's a nice translation. It reminds me of, of a, you know, um, a, a kind of a subgenre of film that I, I kind of like. Are, it's like, uh, you know, apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. So if you think like a film like, like I Am Legend, you know. Yeah, legend, I like that one a lot. Right? You know, um, You're going to bring up Will Smith again? I'm not, no, I, did, I wasn't intending. Just the <laughs> film. But this idea that you're, you know, one or just a few people left. Yes. Right, in Interesting a, that that's his dog, right? His, yeah. His dog is the, it's a German shepherd. I can't remember the animal's name. but Yeah. Uh, it's a pretty good film because it, it shows a lot of flashback yes. of what happened and brought him there. Another one, of course, is the very famous Castaway, which is not mm-hmm. apocalyptic, but sometimes when the world's not falling apart, you know, you have to make your own apocalypse. Right. And you do that by taking the character out of his normal setting. Exactly. Putting him in a different setting. Right. And it, it often is a, a, you know, a destruction of civilization means kind of a return to nature mm-hmm. in, in all of its savagery. Correct. Right? And so you have to you have to find a way to kind of work with nature 
and um, and fight against kind of its 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 um, uh, its its redness and tooth and claw to, right. to be victorious. And Castaway is a great example of right. that. Right. Yeah. Well, and perhaps the origin of this is um, Odysseus trapped on the island of Ogigia with Calypso. Yes. But then uh, Robinson Crusoe, the Daniel Defoe novel, mm-hmm. uh, is a singular example from the last, what, 300 years? Something mm-hmm. like that, 400 years? Yeah. Or Swiss Family Robinson? Were you yes. Su- were you subjected to that as a child? Well, you, you know, know, I like that kind of stuff. I like the treehouse. I like the, uh, you know, um, the innovation, the sense of excitement, the, you know, the engineering and the yes. so forth. Isolation. Right. As a kid, it's fun to play that kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Do, you, do you ever read or, or see the film Mosquito Coast? Mm, no, but I know that's a Kathleen Turner and uh, Harrison Ford. Yes, maybe not Kathleen. I think Turner. it's definitely it's definitely Harrison Ford trying to kind of carve out a civilization in the uh, Ecuador, someplace yeah, like that, in South America, in the jungles, and that. that but it's a uh, but it all it all falls apart. It yeah. it goes lower to the flies. It does very mm-hmm. much so. Yeah, but yeah, I think I think these are all in some ways these are all I think in some ways kind of a spin on the a flood story. I mean, what what is a flood story if not kind of a an apocalypse? Yeah, it's desolation right? and then isolation. Yes, first the desolation, then the isolation. I love this line, especially of Ovid. I would say on the whole, Virgil has more quotable one-liners. Mm-hmm. You know, one line that you can pull out uh, because it's just so memorable, the um, famous Parker Subiectis. But here we have, Nos dua turba, nos duo, excuse me, turba samos posedit cater apontus. We too, nos duo, we're the crowd. That's it. Exactly. We're, we're the only ones left. We're the whole thing, yeah. right? Uh, so no more queuing up at Disneyland. No, no more queuing up at the theater. Everywhere right. you go, you're it. You're it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the sea, the Pontus, grips everything else. Right. That's... So they are kind of Rob, a couple of Robinson Crusoe's. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crusoe's. Crusoe's, right? <laughs> um, they, I mean, I, I picture them here as kind of in... Parnassus is kind of an island here, mm-hmm. and, um, and they look around, and it's there's all, nothing. There's nothing. Yes. Right. Yeah. So what are they going to do? What's what's going to come next? How is the world going to be repopulated, and how is uh, civilization going to be restored? We're going to have to get to that after the break. This episode of Ad Nauseam is brought to you by the good folks at Racial Coffee in Portland, Oregon. Jeff, what can we say about Racial? Well, I'm going to say what uh, one Kate Carey said in a review of the Ratio 8 coffee maker uh, from um, a publication called Morning Call Coffee Stand. Morning Call Coffee Stand. That's that's clever. And, and Kate says, the Ratio 8 coffee maker is certainly not your average coffee maker. Unlike other coffee makers, this particular product delivers the ultimate luxurious experience. Ooh, I like it already. Firstly, it has an impressive design, which is no news to us. We've talked a lot about the, Absolutely. the beautiful nature of these machines. Secondly, it makes really delicious coffee. Therefore, coffee lovers regard the highly priced coffee maker as a must-have. Can, can we pause for a minute? Yeah. I don't think we really want to say highly priced. We want to say something like um, some kind of a euphemism. Because, yeah, it's not your cheap uh, uh, deck and blacker, black, black. What, what do I usually say? Senior coffee. Senior coffee, yeah, right. Yeah. It's uh, not as attainable as those. So something like that. Right. Well, we've, I think we've talked on the pod. You, we, we both subscribe to the, you get what you pay for. Exactly. Right? exactly. The school of philosophy. Exactly. So, um, however, to others, it is another uh, highly priced kitchen item. That's the wrong way to look at this. <laughs> nah, right? No, no says, doubt. Nonetheless, the coffee maker features luxury materials, including glass, wood, ceramic, and metal all packed into one product. You can't beat that. Nope. I'd like to go on with a little bit more of what our new friend Kate says. Please. She says, the Ratio 8 coffee maker is a visual delight. 
But unfortunately, it makes your average coffee machine look plastic and dull. That's very true. That's the whole purpose. Exactly. It, sh- it, and we, it, it shames other appliances yeah. in the room. Sometimes yeah. when I get invited to someone else's uh, home for dinner, you know, I'll take along the ratio eight, you know, <laughs> carry it to the door. Yeah. And you know, oh, come on in. Nice to see you, Mr. Noe. You know, here, have you know, Yeah. And then I said, can I just go to your kitchen for a minute? Yeah. Well, sure. So then I go to the kitchen. I set the ratio eight down next to their senior coffee. Yes. And I just let it sit there and say, look, you know. Right, it, right, and the senior coffee will often kind of cower. Right, right, and, and that'd be something that maybe an intern could carry the next time you do this. Yes, right. yes, that's along. part of the program right <laughs> there. <laughs> right, that'd be great. So let's say one of our uh, loyal audience members mm-hmm. would like to purchase one of these fantastic machines. They want to get rid of the scorch pad, mm-hmm. the brackish tang, yep. the Kindle brick. No, oh, yeah. Uh, they want the hulking flagon. Yes, they do. To exactly. pour into it the uh, coffee goodness. Right. So either the eight or the six. Right. Uh, they would go to ratiocoffee.com. Okay. R-A-T-I-O, coffee.com. And they would select the machine they want, and they would put in uh, the coupon code. And pay attention, because this is a new one. Brand new one. Uh, A-N-C-O-5-J. Yes, 5-J. Yes. Yeah, think, of, think of me. Think, <laughs> think of, of Jeff. Jeff. Five yes. Jeff. That's right. Um, and they will get, uh, is it 15%, 15% off the world's greatest coffee maker? Yes. Check it out. Take our word for it. Take Kate's word for it. This episode of Odd Nauseam also brought to you by Hackett Publishing. Hackett Publishing, a, um, a sponsor that's been with us from the very beginning. Yeah, they were the first one, in yep. fact. We, can't be, we, we, we can hardly say thank you enough. Um, but Dave, what do you like about Hackett? Well, they've been in business for 50 years. So this is no uh, fly-by-night, seat-of-your-pants kind of book publishing operation. Yep. These folks have been putting out the highest quality materials for a very long time. They have offices in Cambridge, Mass., and in Indianapolis Inn, and they have a wide, wide range of classical and other kinds of offerings. For example, just today, we are dealing with two different translations of Ovid's brilliant work, The Metamorphoses. One is by Stanley Lombardo with W.R. Johnson introducing it, and Mm -hmm. the other is by Ambrose. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I love about Hackett is, I think you don't find it in a lot of publishers, is that very fact. You have multiple translations of the same work. And, and so that gives a wide palette of things to choose from. Mm-hmm. Um, because not all, I mean, translation, as we've talked about, translation is not math. No, it's right? interpretation. It's, it's interpretation. artistry. Yep. So I love that. And then also, you know, in an era where the price of textbooks in particular is insane. And it's skyrocketed. Skyrocketed. Hackett's uh, works are uh, very affordable. Right, right. Yeah. I remember when I was in college and people said, oh, you know, you seem like a decent student, uh, David. Why don't you become a you know, a doctor or a dentist or something like that? Why don't you pave the way for future prosperity? Yeah, right? Right, right. We're sitting classics. And I said, well, the textbooks are too expensive. <laughs> No, I'm not going to pay $300 for a textbook with the hopes of making 300000 later. That's just bad math. So, I'll study philosophy. So if textbooks had been affordable, you could be doing like bridge work on somebody Exactly. Right <laughs> I could be, you know, putting in a dental implants or something like that. I really no. enjoy thinking of you as, as a dentist. Do you? Yes, I yeah, do. It's yeah. A kind of a <laughs> reputation of being sadistic, but that's not how you think of me. No, not at all. I just, I just think that, I mean, it's so... It's so fish out of water. Is it? Oh, right. that's why. Exactly. I have a pretty good chairside manner. You do, but trying to get these people, you know, laughing while they have five right. things stuck <laughs> right. in their mouth, right? That's flaws, good. flaws more. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be good at that. No, uh, but you know, those books exorbitantly expensive. It's ridiculous. You want to read Plato and Aristotle, and who doesn't? Yep. Hackett's there for you. They got it all. Right, and they have several translations to choose from. Absolutely. So, listener, um, if you're interested uh, in this kind of stuff, uh, you just go to hackettpublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com. Find the books you want. 
uh, slip them into the the satchel, which is schlepped by. Hackett. I was going to say, better yet, get your own uh, intern. Yes, to do the schlepping. To do the schlepping, and then you type in uh, what's our coupon code here? It's A N two zero two two. To A N two zero two two, and that will get you two things. 20% off. Oh, hold on, a Winkle. Yes. Did you just say 20%? 20% off. That's incredible. Yes. It's, a, it's an amazing deal, and that comes with free shipping. That's incredible. Check it out. Right. And this episode of Ad Nauseam also brought to you by the Moss Method for Learning Greek. Dave, tell us something about the Moss Method. Well, I'd, what I'd like to tell you is that, um, if I can say so with modesty, I believe it is the most comprehensive and thorough Greek program available uh, online. So it takes you from no knowledge of Greek, you know, you're sitting in uh, the egg with Helen, yeah. to a full-blown swan. Yes, yes, yes. Sprinkled did, with allspice. All did the did that work? <laughs> from neophyte to erudite. Yes. If you don't know any Greek, and you know, many of you know a little bit of Greek. I heard someone talking recently, oh yeah, I studied some Greek. And I, don't, I try not to be too supercilious, maybe just a little silious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but let's face it, if you studied some Greek, you maybe don't know it because you, you really got to go all in. You, you got to be thorough and, and, and really embrace it. Right. This program will help you do that. It's yeah. got 40 video lessons, uh, something like 27 hours of instruction, wow. plus 40 lessons, six quizzes, uh, two exams. It's comprehensive. And the, the most important thing maybe is that it's fun. So most Greek textbooks, as we know, teach a rule, apply a rule, forget a rule. Yeah. Not this one. This is a reader. You start out in the very first story with uh, an account of the troublesome boy. And before you know it, you're reading actually things like Deucalion and Pyrrha. That's one of the stories in this program. Fantastic. And um, you offer a lot of stuff uh, free. I do. Right? Lots of things free at Moss Method. MossMethod.com. Correct. Yep. And um, tell us a bit about the Moffice Hours, though. Well, the Moffice Hours, I'm holding one today, in fact. Fantastic. And uh, so once per week, if you're in the program, you get a Zoom link from me, and we meet for an hour, and we talk about anything Greek-related that you want to talk about. That's really so, cool. De rebus graikis, whatever it is, you want to talk about it, right? Yeah. We do that. Yeah. And I think, uh, just one of the, kind of the added benefits, you also get to meet people from all over the world. It's incredible. That's right. That's yeah, really, really I have cool. students in Australia. I've got students in France, students in uh, Ireland, students all throughout the United States, um, studying Greek together. Periton Hellenikon. Let's talk about the Greek stuff. So fantastic. So, so someone interested, what should they do? Well, we uh, we just had to raise the price a little bit because of inflation. It's, yep. no, it's no longer two ninety nine per module. It's the first price raise in four years. It's now uh, $325. Okay. So it's a $26 increase. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> it's a Big Mac and a half. But we're not going to raise the price until June 1. Okay. So you've got almost five weeks to uh, to score yourself a good deal before the price has to go up just a tiny little bit. So go to mossmethod.com and check out what we have to offer. All right, Dave. So as we get back into it, let's continue with the story. Um, and let's do this by you reading some more Latin. Okay, I'd love to. So this is book one again, line, what, uh, 367? Mm-hmm. Excellent. So just before this, uh, Deucalion has been lamenting that he didn't have divine power to, to start things over himself. Mm. So they decide that they are going to uh, beseech the gods. So he doesn't have the Midas touch. He, he does not he, have the Midas touch. He can't touch. just wave a technicolor wand and uh, right. everything is transformed back to life. Right, exactly. So he 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 um he wishes that he could 
he could mold people from clay mm. like the gods do and breathe life in them, but he can't. Did you ever do that as a kid? What? Breathe life into... No, into no, what? no. What? Mold things with clay. Of course. What were your what were your childlike, you know, crafts and hobbies? Did they include mating, making mannequins or little figurines? Little figure, yes. Um, little mannequins and figurines. And what I what I really wanted to do, but the technology was not there. I wanted to do, make like little animations of them. Mm. Which my old, Something your son does. My do- he does. He does it very, very well. And, yeah. And, um, and so I kind of live vicariously through that. But yeah. Right. I loved making little clay figures and imagining um, the kind of the stop at the action things they movies would do. I could make with right, them. Right, right. I used the uh, Lego minifigs. Oh yeah. Back before they were a phenom. Yeah. You know, now they're you could pay thousands of dollars for. Oh, it's it's ridiculous. Customized minifigs, they're almost as expensive as textbooks. You're right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, yeah, the Lego I had was just, you know, you brought in a box and it was just Lego. Exactly. There, there was no fancy Hogwarts. No, no. no. I, I had some of the early uh, space ones, which had I kept them pristine and intact, oh, again, you, they'd you'd be, be worth, retired by now. They would be worth a lot of money. Right. I played with them until the, you know, the logos wore off yeah. from their little plasticky chests a, because it was so much fun. It was. It's a great it's a great toy and there are not many great toys. Wait, are there. we are we plugging Lego now? Well, Do well, we have a sponsor? Okay, we're, we're fishing for a new sponsor. No, no, no. But what I was going to say is yeah. I think this desire to um you know have a sense of control and create your own world, right. which we see from Ducalion here. This is kind of a universal childhood imaginative experience, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think it's that that's um you know the idea that Humans are uh, are like the gods, mm-hmm. right? They're, uh, you know, that Greek point of view is that they're just maybe just a little bit below the gods, mm-hmm. and then it comes out in this 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 desire to create, but without that that kind of that flash of power that you right. need to do that. Deucalion yeah. doesn't have it. So what happens instead? All right. So um, let me trans- give the translation from Lombardo once again of the lines Dave just read. He spoke and wept. Their best recourse was to implore the divine to beg for help through sacred prophecy. So they went side by side to the stream of the, of Cephisus, which, though not yet clear, flowed in its old banks. Mm. So they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna uh, ask for help from the gods, and as it often does in 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 Greek tales, it comes to uh, an oracle. Right. Right. Now, at this point, students have often asked me, "How come there is uh, an oracle of Apollo? How can there be a shrine there? Wasn't everything just swamped and destroyed? Mm. How convenient that there? Oh, there's a shrine, right? Well, let's just." <laughs> And again, I think that's really to be kind of uh, wooden in one's reading of literature. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's to ask a question that the poet's not interested in at all. Exactly right. If you need a shrine there, there's a shrine there, right? Exactly. It's, it's the, like the question I often get is, you know, why didn't Achilles just wear you know, heavier boots? Yes. Right? If he knew that his uh, heel was going to be pierced, right. just wear heavier. It's, it's really not a good question. It's not a good question. Or I, the way I, always, I try to phrase it a little bit more gently, is I, I, I say, I think that's a question that the, that the poet... Um, doesn't want you to ask, or right. it's, it's kind of it's beside the point. Yeah, you and your gentle phrasing. Yeah. <laughs> Typically, when people ask me questions like that, I say, you know, uh, am I a cobbler? I don't know. I'm not a cobbler. I'm I'm paid to teach literature, not boots. So <laughs> you're on your own. I'm trying to make the point here. Yeah. It's not relevant to the author. Exactly right. It shouldn't be relevant to us. Okay, gotcha. Right. Okay, yeah. So you just bring the hammer down a little bit more heavily than I do. You know me, right? Yeah. So um, they they pray. And they ask for they ask for um, uh, they ask for help they they ask for a message, and they call upon Themis, uh, the um, uh, oracular deity, right? right? Um, they ask him, you know, how can our race be restored? Um, bring aid. Oh, this is Lombardo, oh, most mild one, to a world overwhelmed. And the goddess 
gives this response. You want to read those couple of lines there? Yes, can I? This is from Ambrose, just to shake it up a little bit. Yeah. The goddess is moved and gave her prophetic response. From the temple, go and cover your head and loosen the binding of your clothes and toss behind your backs your great mother's bones. So cover your head Mm -hmm. and loosen the binding of your clothes. It sounds like when I, you know, come in from a a cold, wintry day here in Smarchville. That's what you do, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But this part, toss behind your backs your great mother's bones. This is a stumper. This is a stumper. And as as often in um, particular literary uh, versions of oracles, it comes with a little riddle to be solved. Correct. Why do you think that is? um, I don't... I think there's... um, From a Greek point of view that... Uh, especially from a Greek point of view, that uh, the value of, of the the metis, the um, you know the, the cleverness, yes, right? it's something that as a human being that makes you a cut above other humans is your ability to be clever, like and, an Odysseus, like and a, you have to demonstrate it, right? Like Minerva, like okay, like, and, you, and you have to show it, right? You ever bought anything from IKEA? Yes, I have. You and Mrs. Winkle? Yes, we have. And how does it go when you schlep it home or have your you know intern schlep it home? Yeah. Uh, to the to Shea Winkle. Right. And What's the you, first thing? Well, then you open up the instructions where there are no words. Correct. And just little twisty motions of arrows. You open up the instructions, yes. right? So before you can enjoy sitting in your settee right. or putting your feet on your automan, you have to solve the riddle of the instructions. <laughs> right. is- it's the same kind of thing here with the oracle. Yeah. How are we going to repopulate the earth? Well, here's your you know, instructions in five languages, none of which make any sense, especially right. the English. For your easy chair named Carl. Correct. Right, exactly. What? They, all the IKEA stuff has names. I didn't like, know that. Carl and Sven. Really? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the items are named? They're named. They all have kind of these, these, uh, these Norse names. That's bizarre. It's very strange. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah. So IKEA is trying to repopulate the furniture world. World. Exactly right. <laughs> right, right, right. But the idea is again the riddle, the instructions. Yes, right. Yeah. So what do you do usually do? I typically throw the instructions away. You do, and then Mrs. Noe later digs them out of the trash, <laughs> so we can complete the project. I, if I throw them away, it is in a a, a, a fit of rage. Yes, right. Because <laughs> I can't figure out, you know, which way I'm supposed to, you know, turn this little. Uh, Allen wrench, yes. which, which is made for just this one, right. this one piece. A tab into C slot. <laughs> right. What in the world is going on? Right. So Deucalion and Pyrrha, they have a similar problem to solve. The oracle says to uh, throw behind their backs, toss behind your backs, your great mother's bones. Yes. What now does we, this mean? Do before you, we get to that, the the um, the detail of, of cover your heads, mm. it strikes me as a very Roman detail. Of course. Right? Yeah. And so you, you see that a lot in... Um, like free sculptures, Absolutely. which show the sacrifice. You you have the both men and women covering their heads. Yes, right? uh, the famous one of Augustus, right? From the Arapacus. That's yes. right. So it's the Capita Velata, right? yes, with covered heads or Capitibus Velatis with covered heads. Which, as as far as as I know, um, in the Greek tradition, that's no, I, I don't, I, I don't see it in art. No, it's, it's right. a sign of reverence. Mm-hmm. You don't want the gods to see the top of your head. You're showing them that you are uh, submissive. You're, yes, you're bowing, as it were. Exactly right. But so the, they do that. But they do that. But yeah, the brittle part is. What does the oracle mean by the, the, the mother, the bones of your great mother? Right. And right. are they carrying around bones of their mother? It's a little macabre. It is a little macabre. Sorry, macabre. It's very macabre. There's a deep cut all the way back to it's episode one. Oh my gosh, really? Yeah, I think so. Man, you're, you're, you're not, your memory is, is, uh, is impressive. Oh, thank you. Right. And so not only that, you, uh, you have, you're carrying on these bones and then what? We have to, we have to toss them about? That seems so irreverent. It sounds very strange. So what does uh, Lombardo say next about their response to this? Well, they're, they're, uh, he says, they stood there dumbfounded. They have no idea what to do. So it was Pyrrha 
who finally broke the silence, refusing to obey the commands of the goddess. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Irreverence. Mm. She shouldn't do this. It's not good. She prays for pardon with trembling lips, but trembles all over at the thought of offending her mother's shades by tossing her bones. So I think her instinct is... I think is reflective of her moral character. You're right. It sounds to her like this is something you would never do. Yes, but remember, she's the daughter of Epimetheus, so she's not the brightest. Ah. She's not the brightest bulb in the box. So you think that the apple has not not fallen that far from this particular tree? No, it hasn't. Okay. Right? But you think about what's irreverent, you know, going to the cemetery and, you know, playing catch with the bones of your ancestors. Yeah. That's really bad. It's really creepy. So she doesn't want to do it. Right. It reminds me, um, it probably says more about me, but... Um, uh, no doubt. Right? <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the scene or, or the messenger speech from the Bacchae, where he reports when um, Pentheus is dismembered, they, yes. they're playing catch with their body parts. Yeah, with the head. With the head. His mother and his sister are yeah. tossing them around. Tossing them around. That's a good point. Yeah. That is a very deeply disturbing It's a, it's a horrible, it's horrible image. And maybe Euripides. that's what Pyrrha is kind of is thinking about. Maybe here, so. That kind of thing. So uh, Lombardo again says, stalling for time... Uh, the pair revisit the oracle's words, turning them over and over in their minds, searching out their dark secrets. At last, Prometheus' son comforts the daughter of Epimetheus. Ah, uh, you see? Yes. A mention of genealogy is supposed to be suggestive of character yes. and uh, intelligence. Right. So it's um, suggestive. Yeah. That's it, the idea. Maybe it's some, some game playing, too, is that if you don't recognize you know, who those two figures are, then you, you miss the deeper point. Right. So he says, um, Prometheus' son comforts the daughter of Epimetheus with these soothing words. So this is Deucalion speaking to Pyrrha. Either I'm mistaken, or since oracles are holy and never counsel evil, our great mother is earth, and stones in her soil are the bones we are told to throw behind her. Ah, uh, so there he got it. He, he figured it out. Asa reor diki yakaros posturga That's what we got to do. I like this phrase. Can you find it in the land, the, the stalling for time? Uh, let me okay. see here. Okay, it's, it comes right after... Uh, you know, at the thought of offending her mother's shades by tossing her bones, Lombardo translates the next sentence as stalling for time. Mm. The pair revisit the oracle's words. Uh, well, it's in terrear repetunt caecis obscura latebris, verba detai sortis sekin ter sequa volutant. I'm not sure. Yeah. No offense to such a great yeah. translator as Stanley Lombardo. You know, I'm not, I'm not fit to schlep his stuff around as his intern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure that really gets it. Gets it at the, the at, best, right? He, he's trying to, I think, render the adverb here interia. Interia. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, okay. in in the near term, uh, you know, they are repetent obscura. They review the things that are that are hard to understand. Yeah. Caecis latebris, and they're you know the blind riddles. Yes. So I wouldn't say that what he has said is inaccurate. Right. But it maybe isn't. The most precise. It just gives me the image of that. You know, they get the oracle, and Themis kind of turns over the hourglass and says, "All right, mm-hmm. you know." But that I don't think that's the, the sense here, right? Yeah, you know? but maybe the interior repetition. Maybe this is what they're doing. They're just trying to. Well, we don't have it, so what are we going to do now? Let's review once more. Uh, you know, this is a common element in game playing, right? If you if you're a puzzle solver, if you're a Sudoku, yes. Uh, or maybe the full version of the game, not Sudoku, but Susan Doku. Um, you can't, you can't figure out the square. So let's review the whole thing, and yes. maybe it'll stand out. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay. That, that works. So um, this proves to be the answer to the riddle. That's the solution, right? So they um, they do just as the oracle says. They veil their heads, they untie their robes, and they start throwing stones like over their shoulders yes. behind them. Yes. Uh, robes loosened. So the picture is. They're there, you know, with, um, I don't know, uh, you can purchase now um, 
footies. What, what am I looking for? Onesies, adult yes. onesies. Oh, Have yeah. you seen these adult onesies? Yeah, it's 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 off putting. The full body thing yeah. with the the hood and everything, and you have footsies there and so yeah. forth. It's infantilizing. <laughs> so they their heads covered up. Yes, but then they unzip halfway down or so, this and then not, they're this is getting worse. Picking up rocks <laughs> and chucking them over their shoulders. It's a very strange scene. Comic? Right? Yeah. Is this supposed to be comic? I can't say. I mean, we have to ask Robert Mack. They're loosening their ropes so they can have a looser part of the rope to kind of pull over their heads. It's I really, don't know. It, it's very strange. You can't imagine, you know, Romans and togas uh, playing rugby or, or lacrosse or baseball. It's too, no. too restrictive. Very restrictive. Right. So whatever we're supposed to imagine there. I, 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 that's, I mean, it's, Abed, is the, is the joke ever really far from his, uh, far from his pen? Um, they start throwing these rocks behind them and they, um, as Lombardo translates, um, uh, they start to lose their hardness, slowly softening and assuming shapes. And when they had grown and taken on a milder nature, a certain resemblance to human form began to be discernible. Not well-defined, but like roughed-out statues. Um, the parts that were damp with earthy moisture became bodily flesh. The rigid parts became bones. And the veins remained without being renamed. Hmm. Hmm. So the, the veins of the earth become the veins in the body. Isn't that incredible? That's very nice. All right, so Dave, what's, what's the moral takeaway here? Right, well, Ovid sums this up in two lines, uh, ending the Deucalion and Pyrrha story, and that's lines 414 and 415, and the Latin uh, sounds like this. Indigenus durum sumus experiens quelabordrum et documenta demus quasimus origina nati. And let's, let's compare the, the Lombardo and the Ambrose here. Okay. And why don't you start with the Lombardo? Um, yes, yeah, so Lombardo translates those lines. And so we are a tough breed, used to hard labor, and we are living proof of our origin. Mm, I like that. Yeah. How about Ambrose? Ambrose? From this we are a race both hard and acquainted with toil, and give instructive proof of what origin we were born. Ah, okay, so we are we are hard and we are a hard and hardy race. Yes, it's yeah. like the Bob Seeger commercial, right, for the GMC or the Sun. Like a rock. Exactly. Right, yeah, yeah. Some pickup truck. That's how we're made. <laughs> yes. Right? Or this fellow Mike Rowe, you know the Dirty Jobs guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, he's built his whole career on this. Right. People are naturally supposed to be hardworking, and they're supposed to have, you know, sweat on their collar and grime in their eyeballs. They're supposed to be like this. Yes, yes, yes. So, um, and I think it's it's also um, it invites us to compare to uh, in this passage, Deucalion's wish that he could make humans out of clay, mm-hmm. and uh, it's almost like the guy said, "No, no, no, not clay, rock." Interesting. Right. And then in the lines that follow, we hear that after this happens, then the rest of the world kind of springs up um, uh, kind of sui generis on its own nice. around them. And um, and so it's, it kind of separates that human beings are, yes, we're from the earth, but we're also distinct from the rest of creation, which mm-hmm. I think can broadly overlaps with, an, with a kind of a genesis account that human beings are the pinnacle. Definitely. Of creation, right? And this is yet another theodicy, though, right? This is one more theodicy in Ovid, of which there are many. One of the reasons why human beings are wicked is because the ash of the titans is mm. mixed in with ah, our yes, origin. Yes, yes, yes. Here's another reason why we're wicked and hard and, and we toil and life is miserable, because we're born from stones, mm. right? The veins of the earth with all their metallic brilliance, those are the veins of our bodies. Gotcha. Ovid's never satisfied with just one account. Here's right. a, a kaleidoscopic overview of the origins of these phenomena. Yes. Maybe it's this one. Right. Yeah, so in, in kind of Greek and Roman versions of in explaining the you know the problem of pain, the problem of evil, the, um, it's it's rarely kind of a 
uh, a, diso- a moment of disobedience at the eating of the fruit. It's kind of a gradual type of things. So there's kind of this falling away. So I like the idea of like kind of the ash of the titans being kind of mixed in with our right. with our bones. It's like we in- we inherit the the sins of our fathers and we kind of carry them forward. And so it's kind of a sort of slower kind of degradation and falling away from mm-hmm. the gods. Yeah. Very well said. Now, to connect this once again to pop music. Yes, right? please. I learned from you a couple of years ago, oh, maybe three, four, five years ago, uh, that the Rolling Stones yes. uh, hit Gimme Shelter, yes, which is actually quite a good song. It's my favorite Rolling Stones song. I would say lyrically, and I'm not a Stones fan, Gimme Shelter. You told me that, uh, is it, um, not, not Keith, Keith Richards, that he actually wrote that. Yes. I was surprised because much of the good lyrics in any kind of pop music it's not often written by the band members. Someone uh, else writes it, they perform it. Um, no? I I think the the best stuff is written by the, the band members. Okay. Right? So, I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that, I mean, this, I don't want to get into a huge digression, that made the Beatles and the Stones so unique in their 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 era is that they wrote their own stuff. Nobody was doing that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, they, you know, songwriters was a separate job, and then you hire these musicians to kind of play the role. And it was guys like Buddy Holly okay. um, and the Stones that, that did that. But you're right. I think. But, that, but let's connect it to the theme. Please, I, sorry. I, it's okay. No, yeah. no. I brought us down this d- digression. But yeah. if we're made out of stones, right, Rolling Stones, that song, yes. right, uh, all these things, you know, they're just a shot away, the, the, the carnage and the devastation of life. Exactly. Right, right. Exactly right. Oh, that's, a, that's a great song. But if we could only, you know, afford the rights to have that kind of maybe, our outro today. Maybe we can find a cover. <laughs> Speaking of outro, yeah. uh, what are we going to do here, Winkle? Because we have only covered one Ovidian Vignetti. Right. We don't really have time to get into Perdix now. Do we? Are we, are we, are we that up we against it? We are up against it. Right. In fact, here in Vomitorium East. Yes. What, what's going on? Why do we have to get out of here? Well, I, I believe it's the New Zealand national rugby team oh, was yes. coming in here. It, it, I mean, because the inclement weather, they had to come inside. Okay. And they're going to... So is it, is it the rug A team or the rug B team? Oh, it's the B team. Okay. It's the B Just team. Just checking. Right, right. But they, they, I mean, they're loud. They, they, they kind of slap their chest and do what's called, they do the haka. Really? And so it, it's, it gets really loud and, and it's not conducive to doing a podcast. We wouldn't be able to record over no. all of that hoopla of the haka. Exactly right. And I can hear them kind of uh, tapping mm, at the glass right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And... And um, rugby, that the ball that they play, it's it's roughly shaped like an American football, but it's more melanish. It's more melanish. It looks more like a cantaloupe. Okay. Right, right. Um, I've never fully understood the game myself. But uh, um, what about that part where they put their heads together and they move around oh, in a kind the, of the scrum? That's called a scrum. Yeah, exactly. I'm not again. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing there, but I'm, I'm, I I assume it's essential to the game. But we have to get out of here because we, we they're going to flood in, right? <laughs> that's right they're going right. to flood in, and uh, we're going to be in a bad way. So, so. let's let's uh, let's uh, do uh, some thanks here. Yes, thanks to Mishka, our our wonderful editor, puts this all together. Uh, thanks to Scott and to Ken for the great music you hear um, at, on either end and throughout the podcast. Um, Keep those keep those those messages coming in. Um, we love this. You know, so we, we we got we got that great note from uh, Samara. Yes, uh, we'd love to hear more. Uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you yeah, all. Yeah, we'd love to give you a shout out. So uh, don't hesitate. Drop us a note. Drop mm-hmm. a note to me, Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or send one to me at Dave at adnauseum.com. There's actually two V's. There's one in Dave, but then there's another V in adnavsium. You got to right? get both those V's. You got to get those right in there. That's right. And uh, we got some surprising things coming up too, we do. don't we? We're gonna we're gonna introduce a brand new project yes, actually. We are. Yeah. And and uh, should we tease it now or should we just leave people in suspense? Let's leave people in Let, suspense. Let's leave them in suspense. That's right. So, But yeah, new and I think uh, fun things coming down the, down the line. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, Jeff, I think you have the gustatory parting shot today. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's going to take us out of here. 
Yes, I do. This uh, this quote comes from one uh, Desiree Williams, um, illusionary. I believe that does that describe what, what's at her job? That's she, the name of the book. Oh, okay. She's not an Co- illusionary? No, come on, Winkle. <laughs> this comes from her book, Illusionary, and she writes, That's what you would do with untold power? Eat cake? <laughs> there you go. Right. And my answer to that would be absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Thanks.